I've just about had enough of you. I'm more than machine. A man made out of tears. I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and subtongues. Dialects and subtongues. Hello, 50 Years of Shit Robots. I'm Matt. This is Stephen. Hello. <laughs> I'm being so br- brusque because I've just sat through a three-hour film and I feel like I've got to, got to get some time back. <laughs> oh, do you feel like you have to reclaim it? You've got to reclaim some time. <laughs> um, so we thought we were going to stop until the, the autumn, but we thought we'd do a little review of Oppenheimer because Oppenheimer's Trinity Test and the atomic bomb and the dropping of the atomic bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima cast a very long shadow across the robot films of the 1950s and the 1960s as well. So in terms of the films that we have watched, what do you think the earliest reference to the atomic age is? Is it the day the earth stood still? Uh, Yeah, it's got to be the day the earth stood still. And I think that's when we begin to realise that um, that it is... It's something that is all-pervasive. It's it's too powerful for us. Yeah. The Day the Earth Stood Still is 1951. Right. So that is six years after the bombs were dropped. You know, you sort of think that it takes, what, like a couple of years to sort of like conceive a film, write a film, film a film, distribute a film. So that, that feels about right. By the late 40s, filmmakers were thinking about making films that address the uh, this idea of the, the the power of atomic weapons. That's quite interesting because in the 1950s, when they did the tests near Vegas, um, it took them 12 years to stop the tests because they started to realise that uh, in in the early 60s started realising how dangerous it was. Right, just for pe- just for people, just downwinders. The people who are walking- they're called. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, I know. So it took that amount of time science knew that it was dangerous and that's why uh, it is seeped into science fiction the concept of it being something so powerful that we can't really contain it as a race yeah. comes out in the day the earth stood still yeah so other films then after the day the earth stood still that we've looked at that reference this destructive power of the atomic age include Robot Monster in yes. 1953, where there's a, like a, a cataclysmic event and there are, there are only a few survivors. A Gog in 1954, um, where Gog and Magog, the, the robots, try and start a nuclear apocalypse. Well, the next film that we've got that deals with it is The uh, Mysterians, yeah. uh, where it's front and centre, as it is for all the Japanese films that we've looked at in the yeah. 1950s and 60s. Then we've got um, Sex Kittens Go to College, obviously, deal with it. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, don't they just show people stripping? Do they? Stripping. <laughs> they just show people stripping. Um, <laughs> uh, the first spaceship on Venus, which is the Polish and East German production. They've, they've got it in there. Invasion of the Neptune Men, which is another Japanese film. Creation of the Humanoids. Which opens with a nuclear explosion. Yeah, absolutely. Planet of the Storms. And even um, Doctor Who, The Dead Planet, 1963. Yeah. They, they've got their storyline 
is one that involves scientifically driven weaponry. Well, a weapon that came out of the nuclear testing, which was the neutron bomb. Yeah. So the atomic bombs have had a massive impact on the films that we've watched. And so we thought we would have a watch of uh, Christopher Nolan's film Oppenheimer. O-P-P-E-N-H-E-I-M-E-R. <laughs> that was brave. <laughs> That's given it, the film a lighter touch. I think it's because uh, when I was at the cinema watching it yesterday, there's loads of Disney trailers because it's Disney 100. So perhaps in my mind, I thought they should do a, an Oppenheimer film as well. Disney Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the film... Again, without wanting to labour this too much, the first third of it deals with Oppenheimer being like a brilliant young scientist who wants to learn as much as he can about quantum theory, quantum mechanics, and then basically takes it back to America and becomes the sort of father of quantum physics in America. Then the, the next third is the sort of like leading Manhattan Project and creating the atomic bombs, culminating with the Trinity test. And then the last sort of third is then what happens to him afterwards and the, the sort of powers that be in Washington wanting to kind of silence him, I suppose. But all no. those three things are true, but they're all interweaved into each other. So you jump around in the film, very Christopher Nolan-like. Mm. Um, and so all of those three elements are all intersected in a really interesting way. It makes the film, it is three hours long and it feels three hours long, but it is not boring. No, that is, I would say that is a really w good way of describing it. I mean, I was saying to somebody afterwards that the fact that the last third of the film is essentially committee meetings, it, that sounds really dull, but it wasn't. And it was, and it was sort of, I felt like, I felt like it was all really necessary. Is it because we're very used to now courtroom dramas? Maybe. It, it reminded me a little bit of A Few Good Men. Yeah. I thought it was interesting as well how, I mean, you mentioned Oppenheimer, I think, in when we were chatting about the Mysterians film, and um, you sort of mentioned the the speech or, or the, the the sort of speech he gave about um, based on the Bhagavad Gita, yeah, where he talks about yeah, you know yes. being a destroyer of worlds. He knew the world would not be the same. I remembered the line from the. Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. The only thing I've ever watched of him was that. Yeah. You showed me. And he comes across in that as being kind of like otherworldly. Yeah, alien-like. He like, does, doesn't he? Like yeah. he's got no feet, like he's sort of like feelingless almost. He has that look that he's he's been kidnapped and he's been forced to say this. Yeah. But it wasn't. Does. It was the crushing, the crushing knowledge of what he's released. Yeah. He's an American Prometheus. He is. In fact, the, the book on which the film is based was called The American Prometheus? Is or, it? Yeah, it's called The American Prometheus, which was the biography of Oppenheimer by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. Um, but it's nice to find out that he didn't 
that he actually said that quote whilst he was having sex with Florence Pugh. Yeah, I've got. I find the with the those scenes. I was sat next to a teenager, and when it came up that uh, there was going to be sex scenes, he he squirmed, and his mother squirmed because his mother was there. Right, and then and I thought, oh come on, they've seen an awful lot, but the sex scenes in this are, I think, quite uncomfortable. I did think that the portrayal of women in this film wasn't particularly good. Well, interestingly, or not, um. I saw this film yesterday, and the film that I saw just before this was Barbie, <sighs> which um, is brilliant, and everyone should go and see it, but which uh, talks an awful lot about the patriarchy. And having seen that, so being like basically having my whole life picked apart by Barbie because I'm part of the patriarchy, yeah. obviously, then going into seeing Oppenheimer, the women are so minimized and marginalized in this. And it really makes you think that it, it, the whole like war and cold war was just a man's war, wasn't it? Yeah. For pale male and stale. I mean, I was brought up by three women and I've always had incredibly strong women in my life mm -hmm. always. And yeah, they were whingy and uh, square. It was horrible, but they were all, all of them were, or certainly the two key ones, Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt, they were they were marginalised, weren't they? Like Emily Blunt's character is like a is like a biologist, and yet she is forced to become a housewife. Yeah, by just societal norms, isn't she? And so she becomes a an, she's just an alcoholic, and and quite embittered, and quite un, unhappy. But the, the the things that she says that are true within the film, like when she says. Uh, uh, when, and she she holds the grudges right to the very end of the film for certain uh, people in the film. Mm. It, it still was was portrayed in a way to make her look spiteful. I don't. I didn't get that. I got. I got it that she was just unhappy that because of because of how yeah because of the way in which life had had forced her into a box that she just wasn't. That's okay whereas, whereas, though, because that's what happens. Then that's oh. literally what happened in the fifties. And yeah, no, especially I mean, in America, yeah, yeah. Well, and in, yeah, everywhere. My my grandmother was, by all accounts, so this would have been she was born in the twenties, I suppose. So we're talking about in the thirties, probably late thirties, that she was the brightest of all of the the kids uh, in school, but couldn't go to university because the boy had to go to university. The stupid boy had to go to university, and so the rest of her life was basically her not managing her bitterness, which then has a <laughs> had a huge knock on effect with the people that she brought up as well. But so I think that I, I just thought that it was felt symptomatic of of the fact that someone like Oppenheimer, a brilliant man, was able to realize his his ambitions and was given a, a massive tool, you know, massive sort of sandbox to play in and yeah. discover everything he was, you know, he, he should. Whereas Emily Blunt's character was told, no, you might be a brilliant biologist, but we want you to be a mother. We want you to be a housewife. And I thought that was really sad. And I was sort of, I felt very sympathetic towards her. I didn't feel like she was spiteful or, I mean, I suppose she was, but I could see where that came from, I think. Yeah, I can understand where it comes from. But yeah. it, 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 for me, it was kind of the portrait. There was no let up. 
no. these quadrilles. I thought the handling of the, all the concepts was beautiful. Yeah. Um, I do I do have quite a, not a brilliant uh, understanding of all of that, but I do know about it, and I just thought, oh, this is lovely. All the idea of the concepts of fusion, and that was just gorgeous. Yeah. No, it was. It was really lovely. It beautifully, yeah, really beautifully shot, really yeah. beautifully made. So that, that clip, the Destroyer of Worlds clip, I was under the impression that he was he was quite otherworldly, quite feelingless. But this film shows you that he was really charismatic. He, re- he was like a great teacher. He really brought mm. his students along. He was loved, wasn't and he, he? Yeah, and people really loved him. And and he was a you know he was a womanizer. He was so I mean he must he must have had a charisma to to be able to to womanize to, to womanize yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I thought that was really fascinating. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting as well was, so we've just been talking about all of the films that we've watched in the 50s and 60s that sort of like throw up this, the sort of morality of of these weapons. And that actually that was really central to his thinking, if the film is correct in that. It did provide great moral conflicts within him what he was doing the sort of like the, the 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 science that he was doing to create these weapons and then the 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 use of these weapons it was very interesting in that they knew they had to take it as far as they could and as that kind of, as it increased that it was going to be possible to do it then they began to realize that they shouldn't do it and that's when the letters were going to be written yeah, to the the uh, the president of the United States from from Einstein and himself. Yeah. That yeah. scene where he does meet the president, yeah, was wonderful. But short, it was great, and it was hateful as well. Yeah, Get that crybaby out of here. Yeah, yeah. So Truman is is portrayed in a very unflat unflattering way. I mean, it's um, it's what I'd heard about Truman. I don't know a lot about Truman, but just the the idea that. Um, Roosevelt had died in 1945 in the same month that Hitler had died and so Truman sort of I guess had had to make this decision didn't he this terrible awful decision to try and end the war in Japan by detonating these bombs without almost without earning it that he hadn't been he hadn't been the president for almost the whole of the war and yet he made this this decision and he comes across as a very sort of like slightly troubled but arrogant sort of character it's very masculine kind of concept that we've got the biggest bomb and we you know he didn't care about the consequences he just knew that now they were they were they were the 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 greatest world power and that that comes across in that scene very very beautifully that you know doesn't matter what you're going to do he doesn't care he's got the biggest bomb and uh and the world is going to kneel before him. There's a there's a scene where there's there's scientists at Los Alamos who have having a meeting about should should anybody have the right to use this bomb. And Oppenheimer comes into this meeting and basically says that he feels that if this bomb is used, then it will show the world. The world will then cower from it. They will understand the power and they will be terrified. And that will end. It'll just be like end all wars. I mean, that seems now like hopelessly naive. It kind of did, though. As soon as a, a, a country becomes quite powerful, you've got to give them the bomb. Yes. So that they'll never use it. Do you know how many countries currently have nuclear weapons? I don't. 
Then there are nine countries, United States, Russia, China, Israel, UK, France, India, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. North Korea. So there's only nine, and there's like 200 and something countries, so that's not very many. (laughs) No, it isn't. But, I mean, France has been one of the worst countries for carrying on with nuclear testing. And it wasn't just with with the uh, atom bomb, it was with the hydrogen bomb. And that was another interesting concept in the film as well, that the guy who came up with the idea of the hydrogen bomb really, really had... He, he, he was put across as having no sympathy with the impact of such a bomb. And no. that is when this, this idea of, we've got to make bigger and bigger bombs. Mm. And eventually the Russians created the biggest bomb of all which was the czar bomber it was so big there wasn't an airplane around to drop it <laughs> that's good though isn't it that means you're safe it just <laughs> that's the that's the mentality of men bigger and bigger until it's impossible and i uh, it frustrates me that we never we never address the fact that the world's problems are caused by men I hear you. I hear you, brother. I hear you. So what did you think of Oppenheimer? Uh, A colleague of mine did say the other day that they don't make any films like All the President's Men anymore. And I said, no, they do. Oppenheimer, go and see it. I loved it. I really did enjoy it. And I kept thinking, oh, good on you. You've made a really interesting film, an intelligent film, an intellectual film. I thought it was brilliant. Really enjoyed it. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, Oppenheimer will be right up your strata. Yeah, it'll fill in some blanks, won't it? It will fill in some blanks. Because we did actually mention in one of the previous podcasts that they didn't know whether the bomb would ignite the atmosphere. Yes. And they didn't. They, right up to the point of, of, of detonation. Yeah. Who are going to get the Oscars then? Oh, I think Robert Downey Jr. will get Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. I think. I thought he was great. They're not um, going to do a Shakespeare in Love and, and give it to Gary Oldman, are they? For, for his four-second appearance. Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> my, um, my frustration with this is that I really do think that Barbie should get some Oscars. Oh, it will. I'm sure it will. But, I mean, how brilliant to have two films like that out at this, exactly the same time. I thought that's, that's so good. And after, I think they're both after, brilliant. After COVID and after the, you know, cinema... Cinema seats, tickets, taking a nosedive. This yeah. is like this is like Jaws. This is reviving the industry. Yeah. No, you know what is like Jaws? What? Meg, Meg Two. <laughs> that I'm going to see later today. <laughs> Don't worry, there won't be a special podcast um, on that. This was a bad idea. Just a little bit. One thing I was going to ask you actually was um, in the episode, the Mysterians. You quite forcefully said that you feel like that. At some point, America's going to have to apologise. Yeah, and that the excuse that, that you felt that the, the this idea that it might have saved lives, you you sort of weren't down with that. I wondered whether your you've, your position has hardened or changed or nothing since watching Oppenheimer. So the amount of lives that were possibly saved, do you counter that with the amount of lives that were instantly destroyed? Is there a parallel? No, I still think it's a war crime. Okay. Especially two. All right. Well, that's our little summer bonus episode. Uh, keep your feeds alive. Keep them open. Because we will be coming back at you with season six uh, sometime very soon. So until we do, have a great summer. And we'll speak to you again. 
Take care. Bye-bye. Goodbye.